Amen. 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 He is holy, 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 and it is a privilege to be able to come together and sing praises to his name. What a joy, what a joy. I, pray, uh, I would ask you now to turn in the book of Genesis as we continue our worship, Genesis chapter 1. And I know you just sat down, but I'm going to have to ask you to stand back up for the reading of God's word. We stand out of reverence for the word of the Lord. This morning, the scripture reading is going to be one verse, and really just the first half of the first verse, 26. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, verse 26a. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We do thank you for the privilege of being able to come together and sing praises to your holy, holy, holy name. We bow on our faces this morning in humble adoration of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and we just ask you to speak to our hearts through your word. Reveal yourself to us through the text, through your word, which is where the power lies. We love you so much, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we've had a wonderful time together in our study of Genesis thus far. We've looked and marveled at the majestic power of the Almighty God on display as he spoke the very heavens and the earth into existence by his sovereign, omnipotent word alone. And in an instant, from the waters to the light, his separating day from the night, from the land sprouting trees to the plants with their seeds, from the sun, moon, and stars set in their courses above to the fish of the seas, The birds and the bees, and yes, even those vine-swinging chimpanzees, all brought forth like that. We've marveled together at this creative work, which was perfectly and powerfully accomplished over a span of six literal 24-hour days some 6,000 years ago. We've marveled together as we've heard of God's looking at all he had made and seeing that it was good. In fact, he saw it was very good. It was all very good, including those whom he would go on to create next. The climax of his creative work, the culmination of his creation, the pinnacle of all that he had produced by his sovereign word, his creation of man. Man, his image bearers, living, conscious human beings, not only aware of their existence in creation, but also aware of their existence as creatures of their creator. Creatures capable of interacting emotionally, spiritually, not only with others who had been granted life, but also with the one who had granted them life in the first place. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And it's those seven words that I want to consider in our time together this morning. Let us make man in our image. And not really even all the seven. Well, get into the implications of image-bearing and the divine mandates given to man as we go along in Genesis, Lord willing. But for today, I want to focus on just two words. Two words of the seven. Namely, the us and the our. Let us make man in our image. Meaning, I want to speak about the Trinity. I want to consider together the triune nature of of our creator. And from the outset, I'll admit two things. Number one, 
as you can see from the outline. I'm fully aware I've bitten off way more than I can chew. It became evident the moment I sat down to write this, meaning we may be a skosh long this morning, just a little bit. If you need to leave, I totally understand. Number two, I need to make it clear that this is not an explanation of that which is unexplainable. I have no desire or even attempt to explain the unexplainable. I've said it many a time from this pulpit. Our inability to fully comprehend the majestic nature of the triune God is a good thing. It's a great thing. I like, no, I love worshiping a God whose greatness far surpasses my ability to comprehend it. I praise the Lord that I can't fathom the depths of the truth of his holy and divine character. That's what makes him God and us not God. We see it all the time. It's the feeble attempts of man to explain that which is unexplainable that ends up getting us into trouble. It's been that way for millennia. Many in the early church and throughout the centuries that followed, they knew the reality of a triune God was staring at them right in the face every time they opened this text, but in their finiteness, they couldn't understand it, and it drove them nuts. So they theorized, and they philosophized. They said, God is one, but God is three, which must mean he is God, but manifested in different modes. In this text here, he is God the Son. And over here, he is God as the Spirit. And here he is, above all, as God the Father. In other words, one God and only one God, but this God who presents himself in three different forms or roles at any given time. Or that the Son of God was not God at all, but rather... He was just another creature, though one in an elevated or exalted position, given life by the Father along with his fellow man as he came into this earth. All kinds. And I mean all kinds of other wacky analogies used to convey the biblical teaching of the one God in three persons. He's like a cloud, they say. He's a cloud, and he's raindrops, and he's the fog of a misty morning. All water, but in different forms. He's a flame and heat and light, but he's all the same fire. He's a deep root and a trunk and the branches, all the same tree, but different parts. But none of these cut it. There are just no sufficient explanations for that which is unexplainable. And we have to be okay with this tension. In fact, we have to embrace this tension, else we run the risk of misrepresenting God and leading others astray. I remember I heard a guy preach one Sunday morning, and he used three notes of the piano to explain the Trinity right when he was preaching. It was, it was amazing. He said, uh, dun, dun, dun. Then he did them all, all at the same time. Dun. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful, harmonious sound. Well, a few years later, I tried to do the same thing in a room full of people. I didn't realize, though, he was playing a chord. I didn't even know what a chord was. So I just hit the three keys that were right next to each other, and it wasn't quite as beautiful. In fact, just as everyone began to mock this atrocious melody, I said, well, we can't fully explain the Trinity anyhow, so it doesn't matter. And that's okay. It's okay. But while we may not be able to adequately explain the unknown depths of this divine truth, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take some time to consider what we do know, right? That's right. Don't 
Don't think that I'm trying to explain and make perfect sense of the distinct yet perfectly eternal, co-equal, in essence, and authoritative nature of the triune persons of the Godhead. I am not. Trust me. I will spare us from such a feeble attempt. What I want to do instead, with the very short time we have together, is to point you to the scriptures where this reality is clearly displayed and specifically in some of the major doctrines of the Bible, okay? Even though we may be a skosh long, this will be a very quick survey, almost like a flyover. In fact, we won't even scratch the surface of the vast evidences contained within the written word, but we're going to do it anyway. It would be very irresponsible of us to lump in this us and our with last week's consideration of the sixth day. We can't do it. I think it's worth our time this morning to consider these two words. Us and our. Us and our. We've seen this word for God used uh, multiple times in the first chapter, El. The mighty creator God, though here in its plural noun form, Elohim, leaving the possibility even then for plurality within the Godhead, within within the one God, excuse me, this Elohim who says, let us make man in our image. Last week we touched on some of the Theories, some of the hypotheses imagined by those who seemingly said, well, I've read Genesis and that's good enough for me. This was God speaking to the angels, they said. God said to the angels, let us make man in our image. Though man being made in the image of angels or angels being made in the image of God is not found anywhere in the inspired text, including here. So others said, no, no, no. This is the majestic plural This is God's intensifying his royal majesty, the royal we. Let us create man in our image. Male and female, we shall create them. Oh, very reverent. Very regal. But again, it falls short. Pitiful attempts rise to the surface. Pitiful attempts to try to comprehend that which is incomprehensible, pitiful attempts to explain away that which seems to be an obvious, clear, straightforward reading of the text when taken in consideration with the rest of the revealed scriptures. And the obvious, clear, straightforward reading of this text when taken in consideration with the rest of the revealed scripture is that this us and our in verse 26 is speaking of the triune God. The Godhead, as it says in the King James Version. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy God, three in one. Now, I ask again, should Genesis 1.26 be your primary proof text? Should you find yourself in a debate or lecture on the triune nature of God? Probably not. But should we feel comfortable in light of the rest of Scripture and using this as one of the earliest examples of his revealing the plurality within the Godhead? I would say absolutely. We should absolutely feel confident there. And I want to show you why. And to do that, we must go back to the source. We must go back to God's revelation of himself and his holy and inspired, inerrant, infallible word. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. If not, there should be one under the the seat in front of you. I'll put some of the references up there, but, or, or William will, uh, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to turn several places 
with me here. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. At least write the references down to consider later. I, I want to look at some of the major doctrines found within Scripture as they unfold. But I want to begin, I want to start at the end. Who are the us and our of Genesis 1, verse 26? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to start at verse 12. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he says, verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the authority to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to receive the water of life without cost. I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy... God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Here we see the bookends of the entire special self-revelation of God. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth, which at this point at Revelation 22, are no more. Remember last week, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11? They fled from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. No place was found for them, John said. Yet, the eternal God still remains, along with the souls of his creatures, and are skipping ahead to the end, right from the get-go, right from the first point of our time together, immediately and clearly reveals the us and the our of Genesis 1.26 as being the triune God of the heavens and the earth. And the message that he gives to you is, come. Come. Which is the opposite of go, right? Go away. Uh, Flee, run, depart from me, as Christ will say to the unbelieving man and woman, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh yeah, this is an invitation by the triune God here for those who are thirsty to come and drink. And this invitation here only reveals that there's also a group of people who will not come, right? Men and women who aren't thirsty. Those who remained in the condemned state that they were born into. Born into a condemned state? What does that mean? Well, it means they were born into this world in a condemned state. 
Let's go back to the beginning now. Flip those Bibles back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So man, meaning mankind, both Man and woman created in chapter 1, verse 26, are now judged by God. They are driven out of the very good creation that we've been hearing about together during our time in Genesis. Man was driven out, told to depart, flee, which is, again, the opposite of come, right? He was now separated from his creator. Why? Because of sin. Because of his iniquity, because of his blatant disobedience, his willful transgression of God's holy command. God told him, man, any tree in the garden, it's yours. I made them for you. Everything is for you. Subdue, have dominion, thrive off the gracious provisions I have given you. Just don't eat from that tree over there. You eat from that tree over there, you will die. Serpent tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. Excuse me, Eve eats. Eve tempts Adam. Adam eats and both immediately live. Yeah, physically they live, but they die spiritually. In fact, death enters into this perfectly good creation and death spreads to all men. That's what it says as we go along uh, a little bit further in God's progressive revelation, right? Yeah, Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 5 that through one man, sin entered into the world. Death through sin. So death spread to all men because all men sinned. Because all sinned. Meaning, All men that followed Adam, all men and women born of the seed of Adam, all men and women who had an earthly father who descended from Adam were born in and were actually conceived in this condemned condition, physically alive, spiritually dead, spiritually separated from this triune God, from our conception before we did anything good or bad. This is called the doctrine of original sin. It's a doctrine which many professing believers feel is appalling and loathsome and offensive. But their opinions and their feelings mean diddly squat when put up against the truths of God's word. If they have an issue with this thoroughly biblical doctrine, they ought to take it up with the one who decreed it. Perhaps they ought to take it up with the second member of the Godhead, as it's clearly emphasized, highlighted by the very Son of God himself. I want you to see it with your own eyes here. Turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, a very well-known section of Scripture, very well-known. 
But as we've said before, one that folks typically like to stop reading about, eh, verse 16. Dead of night, Pharisee named Nicodemus comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who says somewhat out of the blue in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which Nicodemus thinks about it and replies, hmm, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's a good question. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God the Son, speaking of God the Father's kingdom, which comes through those who are born again of God the Spirit. That sounds like triune participation to me, right? Jesus goes on to elaborate, progressively reveal truth in verse 6. He says, that which has been born of the flesh is flesh, which again is all of us, right? Everyone with an earthly father is born of the flesh. So yes, it's all of us. He says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Right here, in these verses, Jesus is giving Nicodemus the remedy for the spiritual death that occurred back in Genesis chapter 3. He's saying, listen, the flesh, it ain't going to cut it on judgment day. No matter how you dress it up, Pharisee, you were born in the flesh. But the flesh is cursed by the original sin of mankind's representative, Adam. And the God of your people, Nicodemus, has been very gracious, like he was with Adam and Eve, as he extends his amazing grace to everyone by not killing them the very moment they sin. He doesn't kill us the very moment we sin. He lets us live on this earth. He He allows them to experience common graces on this earth, family and food and fun and good health and relationships, laughter, art, music, rain, sun, beautiful landscapes, etc. Those are the temporal common graces of God. But make no mistake, eternal accountability is coming. And it's coming quickly. In your natural condition, in your fleshly condition, you are condemned. One day when this physical body of yours inevitably perishes, you will have to stand before him spiritually to give an account. And as they say in the hood, you better make sure you come correct. You best come correct. In other words, don't come in the flesh. You come in the spirit. How do we do that? Answer, by faith in his promise. By faith in his promise. Look at verse 16. We know it, we love it, we memorize it, we cling to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. I would say to you this morning, believe on Christ today and be saved. 
Because if you've never believed on Christ, you are still in your sin and the wrath of God still remains upon your everlasting soul and you are separated from him. You are under his judgment. We are all condemned in our natural state from our birth, from our conception, which is why we have to have a new birth, a spiritual birth. Jesus says this very same thing. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now listen closely here. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. There it is, judged already. He who does not believe has been judged already, judged, condemned, separated from God already, not at death, but from birth. Indeed, as David says in Psalm 51, from conception, we are judged. Verdict has been delivered. Sentence pronounced. We are alive physically, but dead spiritually, dead Spiritually dead and separated from God. Unless something changes, we will face his eternal wrath. Therefore, we must be born what? Again. That's right. A spiritual rebirth. We are born again of the Spirit. God the Father. God the Son. God the Spirit are all co-equal co-authoritative, active participants in the condemnation of man. Someone says, oh, the Spirit of God? No, the Spirit wouldn't condemn anybody. The Spirit is a descending dove. The Spirit is the one who makes us happy, I thought. I, I saw that's what I saw on TV. A bunch of folks bouncing around laughing like hyenas. Rolling around in the aisle, speaking with ecstatic speech, getting all their ailments and diseases healed as they are slain in the Spirit, right? Surely, the eternal Spirit of God wouldn't condemn someone to hell. And I would say, oh, my sweet, hoodwinked friend. Remember when Ananias and Sapphira, professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, sold the field, brought only some of the proceeds to the apostles, laying it at their feet in Acts chapter 5? So unnecessary. The apostles didn't even ask them to sell the field in the first place, but they did it. And then they came up with this huge lie, conspiring, uh, Ananias conspiring with his wife to make himself look better by saying he brought all of it when he only brought some. Classic pretender. Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And again, they didn't tell him to sell it. They didn't even ask him to sell it. He says, why it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Even after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. God, the Holy Spirit. As he heard the words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last. Great fear came over all who heard. Sapphira comes in. Hey, guys, how's it going? So it's the same thing. 
And Peter says, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And that's what happened. She dropped dead right then and there. This is triune participation in condemnation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active participants in the condemnation of man, temporally and eternally. Sinful men and women who remain in their spiritually corrupted and cursed condition they inherited from the earth, which, excuse me, which they inherited from their birth, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, the good news, the good news is, again, this invitation to escape the eternal condemnation. The invitation to escape this eternal condemnation is there, not only in Revelation chapter 22, not only in John chapter 3, but throughout the whole of progressive Revelation. He says, come to me. Believe. Be born again. And he clearly lays it out for us, not only the means by which we can be born again, namely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but also the process and the end result. The end result, which is our glorification. Glorification, which none of us yet enjoy in its fullest sense, but we will one day. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8.3 in your outline. I'm trying here. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself, Paul writes, Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Okay, if we are born of, again of the Holy Spirit, he then testifies with our now reborn or regenerate spirits that we are eternally secured by our Creator, permanently sealed for eternal life with Him. In fact, when we are born again, we are no longer children of the flesh or children of wrath, Ephesians 2 verse 3, but when we are born again, we are born children of God. And Paul says here in verse 17, if children also heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Again, God the Spirit in verse 16, along with God the Father and God the Son in verse 17, are all working together in perfect concert, in perfect unison, to bring about the ultimate glorification of those now regenerated and spiritually restored believing men and women. Now, what does it mean to be glorified? It's been defined as being rendered glorious. To cause to have splendid greatness. To clothe in splendor. To invest with dignity. To give anyone esteem or honor by putting him into an honorable position. Now, do any of us deserve such honor? Of course not. I like that. Never. That's what makes God's grace so amazing. Now here it says that we may be glorified. This speaks of future glory in glory. 
with the same triune God in the new heavens on the new earth. Revelation 21 talks about the glory of God radiating throughout this new city, the new Jerusalem. He says, and I saw no sanctuary in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. She got excited about that ecstatic speech. I know what's going on here. Uh, The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. These are redeemed, regenerated, born-again men and women bringing their God-given glory and giving it back to God for all of eternity. Something that not only kings, but all true believers will participate in throughout all time. This is the triune participation in glorification. Are you one of those here this morning? Are you one of those who will be glorified with Christ? Glorified together with Christ? You say, well, how do I know? Well, you know because of what has happened to you. Namely, that you have been justified by faith and are being sanctified through grace. Let me explain this. Justification is an event. It happens once permanently. Sanctification is a process that goes on throughout the rest of your life as your newly regenerated soul grows in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior and you subsequently bear the fruit of His Spirit. I wasn't saying you had to leave there. She's fine. Alex always said, if you ain't crying, you're dying. And she wasn't even crying. Those were beautiful sounds. Better than my piano playing. Let's stay here in Romans 8 here for clarification. Point number four in your outlines. We're moving. We're getting it. We're doing this. If we keep reading in, in Romans 8, we'll see that the glorification has already occurred in the eternal sense because of our being born again. Because of our being justified, sealed by his Holy Spirit. Because verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, okay, again, we're working backwards here. All true believers will be glorified, and all true believers are already glorified, eternally speaking. And that glorification comes through our justification. Justification. Or being declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Before, corrupted, cursed, unrighteous, unholy, condemned to eternal death, right? We were born condemned. We were born judged by God. Now, justified, declared righteous, declared holy, declared to be perfect, and therefore now acceptable in the sight of this infinitely holy God. But how? How in the world is this possible? Well, we've already heard, by faith in the Son of God. But what, just believing that he's real? Just believing that he exists? Just believing that he lived among us? No, 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 no. By believing that something had to happen to him 
for our sake. In his own words, back in John chapter 3, Jesus said, God the Father, the first person of the triune God, so loved the world, a called out people from every tribe, tongue, and language, that he gave his only begotten son. He gave the son that all who believe in him have faith would not perish, spiritually speaking, because they were born again through God the Holy Spirit, but have everlasting life, eternal death, completely done away with. What does that mean that the Father gave the Son? He gave him for what? To do what? Answer? To die. But first, to accomplish that which sinful men and women in their natural condemned, spiritually dead condition could never do themselves, and that is please his Father. You see, God the Father demands perfection. Perfection from those who would come to him. Which is why Jesus told the crowds and his disciples, if you want to come, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. In fact, he took it a step further. He said, you are to be perfect. Perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. For this eternal glorification to be accomplished, for this eternal reconciliation to be accomplished. We must be perfect, without spot, without blemish, zero, zero deviation from the law of our creator, the holy law of God. And Jesus said this immediately after saying to look at a woman with lust is committing adultery in your heart. That being angry with somebody is murder. So how are you doing on that whole perfection thing? You're doing just the same as everybody else. We're all doomed. There are none righteous. No, not one. No sons of Adam, anyhow. But there was one who was not born of the seed of Adam. One who didn't have an earthly father. In fact, one who was given by his father in heaven. God the Father gave God the Son through the miraculous conception within a virgin's womb, conceived by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Meaning this child was both God and man, truly God, yet truly man, which is the only way. And I mean the only way he was able to prevail where we failed. The only way he was able to grow and keep the law of God perfectly, entirely, completely, without deviation to the left or to the right in either deed, word, or thought. He was perfect. He was perfect. Which means, He was the only perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of totally corrupted and cursed men and women who could never justify themselves. In order for true justice to be served, blood had to be shed. That's the way it's been since the beginning. Ever since Adam and Eve hid themselves behind those trees, they were naked in the garden. You remember that? They didn't stay naked, though, did they? What did God provide them with? Skins. That's right. Hides. Hides of what? Animals. You got it. Animals had to be killed. Genesis 3.21. Then Yahweh God made garments of, of skin for Adam and his wife. 
He clothed them. Again, death had now entered into the world through one man's sin. Adam and Eve should have been the ones who were killed immediately. Instead, it was some animal. I always picture this bull or this ox looking over at Adam and Eve at this moment saying, dude, thanks a lot. (laughs) Blood had to be shed, though. Their sin had to be atoned for. It was necessary to maintain the justice and appease the righteous wrath of an infinitely holy God. And that's what happened with our Lord Jesus Christ. His blood was spilled. Only God himself had the power to deliver our eternal souls. This perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice, whom Revelation already referred to as the Lamb of God, this perfect, sinless, spotless lamb was led to the slaughter to take the place of and bear the penalty of sin for, to atone for the sin for all who would believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. All who would confess with their mouth that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is indeed Lord. All who would believe in their hearts that he was killed and buried and raised from the dead three days later, defeating death, satisfying the righteous wrath of his Father. It should have been us who bore that wrath. But instead, it was the Son of God. As we are now cleansed by his blood, covered in his righteousness. And now, when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees us as naked, corrupted, cursed men and women, but he sees us as washed, purified, children of God, clothed in the perfect righteousness of his perfect Son. We have been declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. That's the great exchange. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us, justified in God's sight. Judged not according to our works, but his. And his works are perfect. Just as if we've never sinned, some have said, sure. But so much more than that. Glorification clothed in the splendid greatness of Christ. Which again, all three members of the triune God are present and active in the the Father sent the Son, conceived in the Spirit. The Son accomplishes the will of the Father through the power of the Spirit. The Father delivers up the Son to death to atone for the sins of all who would, by the regenerating work of the Spirit, believe in his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. The Spirit, whom whom the Son would send to indwell and seal the hearts of those who belong to him when he ascended back up to the right hand of his Father. This is the triune participation in justification. But was this even known during the Old Testament times? Did people even know this would happen? Absolutely. I want to take these next two points together. The triune participation in anticipation and realization. This is nothing new. This is Genesis chapter 3 stuff here. Uh, When the man and the woman were being judged by their creator for their sin, right before he kicked them out of Eden, he pronounced upon them curses. Even that serpent, Satan himself, got it that day. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed uh, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, more than any of the be- any beast of the field. On your belly you will go, Dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall 
bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. The seed of the woman? Why didn't he say the seed of the man? Adam. Adam was the head, the representative of all mankind. That's why, why we inherited sinful nature, the sinful nature through his seed. But this isn't talking about one who would come from Adam's seed, a seminal transfer, but rather from her seed, one who was born of a woman. Therefore, born without inheriting that original sin nature. There's only one who fits that description. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The long-awaited, highly anticipated Meshiach, Messiah of Israel. Not only Israel, but again, the whole world. Kings of the nations will bring him their glory, remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The anticipation of this Christ is prevalent throughout the revealed text. The Psalms and the prophets are replete with direct mentions of Yahweh's Christ. Present in many of them are all three members of this triune God. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Where is Enos now? This is his, his favorite chapter. All right. Hebrews chapter 1. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of what Paul said in his second letter to Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. Men under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit are writing these things down. Peter says the same thing. Know this first of all. No prophecy of scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay? Holy Spirit, who said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. What more do you want? Who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, The Spirit-inspired anticipation. Seven quotations in ten verses. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the Son of God in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's the Son of God in 2 Samuel 7, 14. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. That's the Son of God in Psalm 97, 7. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire. That's Psalm 104, verse 4. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You've hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's the Son of God in Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. 
They will wear out like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. You are the same. Your years will not come to an end. That's the Son of God in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet? That's the Son of God in Psalm 110. Peter quotes several of the same passages in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when he tells the Jews and the others of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of God's promised Messiah. As he says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. That's the promise. And there's the triune participation in anticipation. The writer of Hebrews is saying, yeah, this eternal son, he came into this world. He lived, he died, he rose. He was exalted back up to the right hand of the Father on high. The prophets knew it. The prophets knew of this one who was to come. They just didn't know exactly who he was. But we do. Jesus of Nazareth. The highly anticipated, spirit-anointed Son of God. Prophecies which were realized as he came into the world, bursting on the public scene. Mark chapter 1. He came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him to go out into the wilderness. The Father said, Here he is. Here's the one I've been telling you about. Here's my Son. The Spirit-empowered Son who would go on to preach the kingdom of his Father, the gospel of his Father to all sinners, all who would but hear his word and believe and who would go on to tell others about this glorious gospel of grace, whom he would commission to go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Of course he's with us to the end of the age. He's the with his people in every age. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the end from the beginning and all in between. He is the creator and sustainer of worlds, including the one we are all sitting upon this morning. This is point seven in your outline. Paul, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, tells the believers at Colossae, for in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, how many things? All things have been created through him and for him, by, through, and for the very word of God, who John says was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the word, he says. The word was with God, and the word was God. All things, how many things? That's right, came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Nothing came into being apart from his word. His word. 
And would you guess who's all present in the beginning? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God himself was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said... By his authoritative word, let there be light. Then God said, let there be an expanse. Then God said, let dry land appear. Then God said, let earth sprout vegetation. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse. Then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth. And then God said, by and through his word, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness. Now, in light of all of that, that that brief pitiful attempt at piecing together these magnificent truths in 55 minutes, but more so in light of the clear progressive revelation of the triune God, in light of the clear triune participation in condemnation, glorification, justification, the realization, the anticipation, and even as we've just read, the very creation of the heavens and the earth, how could anyone in their right minds think that this us and ours talking about God and angels It's nonsense. Let us make man in our image. Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he created him in the likeness of God. Not in angels, but God himself, the triune Godhead of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you know this triune God? Do you know this one God in persons three? Do you know this blessed trinity? You say, well, how can I be sure? The answer to that question is, do you believe what he says about himself clearly in his divinely inspired word? Do you you believe it? Have you heard it and do you believe it in its plain, literal, basic sense? Which, Which anyone who picks this up and sincerely reads it from Genesis to Revelation, uh, can clearly see the claims that it it makes concerning the triune nature of the Godhead. That that he is one eternal God in three distinct yet co-equal persons. Do you see this? Do Do you believe it? If you believe it, then you can walk out of this place this morning with all the confidence in the world that knowing that you belong to him. And that nothing can ever snatch you out of his hands. Why? Because the same triune God has chosen you for salvation and reconciliation to himself even before the world began. And in the blessing of his progressive revelation, the same God has a word for you this morning, believer. One last passage this morning. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. You'll see it in your own Bibles. This is the last one. 
writing to the saints at Ephesus, and all true believers since, this is a blessing from the Lord that you get to hear this morning through his word. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him for an administration of the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that end that we, we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That's the God of the scriptures. From Revelation to Genesis, that's the God of all creation. This is the one true living God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Do you belong to this God? Do you believe in this God? Do you believe in this glorious gospel of the grace of God? If not, I would invite you to believe on Christ this morning, to come to him, to drink of the living water without cost, to come by the power and in the strength of the Holy Spirit. I would invite you to come. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. Amen? Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.